This is Transit Unplugged, and I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to another episode in our special series of Transit Unplugged in the United Kingdom. And today we talk to a private provider of bus service in the London area, Paul Cox, who is Group CFO for Tower Transit, which is a company that uh, largely operates out of Australia and now has moved into the United Kingdom and is also working its way into North America. There in the United Kingdom, they operate about 400 vehicles for the uh, Transport for London, and uh, they have nine hydrogen buses among them, and these are under contract, which is different than how it's done outside of London, as I mentioned on a previous episode, where private for-profit companies come in and set up their own routes. In the city of London, there's a lot more control of the bus service, and the companies that operate it under private contract do so at a subsidy from TFL. We'll talk about what's going on there in London and what the future is for companies like Tower Transit as they continue to grow and expand their services there in the United Kingdom and around the world on this special edition of Transit Unplugged in the United Kingdom. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, and welcome to a special edition of Transit Unplugged. This week, I'm in Britain, meeting with a number of great leaders of transit systems across the country. And today, I'm excited to be with Paul Cox, who is the group CFO of Tower Transit, one of the major transit providers, not only here in Great Britain, but around the world. I'm sitting in his office in London. Paul, thanks for uh, being a guest on the show today. No, thank you for the invitation, Paul. Yes. So um, tell us a little bit about Tower Transit. A lot of our listeners in North America, at least, may not not be familiar with the company, but you all are a big operator of transit services under contract with government agencies around the world. Yeah. Okay, so the, the provenance of the, the business comes out of an Australian set of shareholders who uh, started their business over 20 years ago and have grown it to be the largest operator of public transport in Australia. But, uh, a few years ago, they had an opportunity to expand overseas, uh, so they raised some more finance, um, bought a part of the uh, first group London business and uh, we've uh, we run autonomously but the uh, there was obviously uh, a good amount of corporate knowledge that was uh, was brought with it and we in London have a portfolio of over 20 contracts which are a, a five-year churn which is the, the London model and in our six years now since uh, we were formed we've had a couple of corporate acquisitions uh, in other aspects of, of transport but the the big corporate development was when we won a contract in in singapore which is a very exciting marketplace and uh, we uh, were the first company invited to uh, take a contract there outside of the uh, local businesses so uh, first, oh that's first, good yeah first move in that area and it's been a, um, a particularly interesting and rewarding exercise there to, uh, to be part of that. At the moment, we are working in, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, to uh, working with the Los Angeles Department of Transport to hopefully provide them with services uh, starting later in the year. That's a very exciting development for us. Fixed route or demand response? No, fixed route. Okay. There's an element of demand response, but it's a relatively small part of the total. But we, in the... Australian business, they have a, a product for demand, the responsive. Um, I was just uh, there in Australia. I, I interviewed yeah. their top seven CEO or seven of their top CEOs there, yeah. 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 It was a product called Bridge, which... Okay. Uh, uh, B-R-I-D-J? That's the one. Did yeah. you all, were you all involved with that company called Bridge, which was running microtransit 
in Boston and Australia? Or? Only in a, a Phoenix sort of arrangement. When, okay. Because uh, it went into receivership. I yes, it did. And, yeah. Uh, then yeah. Uh, our, our guys bought it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got and you. They've been developing it then uh, subsequent to that. Interesting. So we're just putting Bridge into Singapore uh, for oh, okay. our, uh, staff bus movements overnight. And uh, that went live this week, actually. So really? when I get back into the, uh, the the meeting I've stepped out of to, to do this, <laughs> hopefully you'll have a, a bit of an update on that. Uh, so that's, that's very exciting. But, I mean, in terms of our expansion um, aims, it's, it's very much uh, probably... Areas which we can understand and add value to uh, governments, sort their problems out, whatever that type of thing. It's, it's making things work hopefully better than they do at the moment. Um, we have uh, aspirations to, to roll out big time in, uh, in the US with um, our first members of staff coming on board this week. It's all very exciting. We're, Congratulations. Uh, since, I suppose, for the last 12 months or so, we've been looking at, at projects over there. Uh, we have had a look in South America as well. Mm-hmm. That is actually rather more challenging. Um, I think the uh, not that the US won't be, but right. I think it's at least we can uh, we can talk the same language. Yes. which is a big step forward. Yes, I have a good friend, Mark Joseph, who used to be CEO of Transdev in North America. Mm-hmm. When they entered into Colombia, I think he was in, and some other South American markets to run rail service and bus. And he was telling me the massive amount of people that ride transit in South America. They've got a different issue, you know, in North America, and I understand here in Britain too. Bus riders is on the decline in a lot of cities. It's a different game in some other places of the world, you know? Absolutely. I was in um, Santiago last year. Okay. Um, sorry, year before last, um, looking at a, a project there. And uh, yes, very well bust and a huge amount of people traveling. Yeah. So tell me about your journey and how did you end up here at Tower Transit and how long have you been here, that kind of thing? So my career started in the in the bus industry about 94, so this will be my 25th year. Congratulations, uh, silver yeah, anniversary. A bit of a milestone. Um, I mean, prior to that, I had uh, trained in public practice as a chartered accountant and then moved into the motor industry in retail. So I, I spent a, about five years wandering around Europe as a uh, financial controller of a, uh, a BMW retail organisation. Ah, okay. So uh, I did a lot of travel, two weeks in Germany, a week in France, and a week in the UK every month. Which that was, was your uh, routine, eh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that uh, sounds glamorous, but uh, no. <laughs> Gets <laughs> old. Great company. That was for, for Inchcrate, so the big, big uh, listed business here. Ultimately, moved into uh, a business which had been done a management buyout out of the public sector uh, Birmingham bus organisation. Okay. And they were looking to beef up their um, their financial support to enable the listing uh, an IPO, but as the, the timing wasn't quite right for it. Um, and ultimately, it was bought by National Express. Ah, so yeah. I, that put me into the National Express fold, and I was there for about eight years in various roles, uh, European FD, FD in Australia, and Deputy CEO of there. And uh, that was for rail as well as bus. So that expanded uh, my expertise from bus into light and heavy rail. Which is Where were you based out of in Australia? Melbourne. Oh, yeah. I love Melbourne. It's a lovely city. Yeah, it reminds me of Chicago. It has the same vibe of that. Chicago's one of my favorite American cities. Yeah, Melbourne was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to travel around a bit there because we had operations both Perth and uh, and in Sydney. So okay. I got a, a good uh, good flavor of it. Yeah, PTV, I met with all their guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was good. So we, we had three franchises over there. Which, oh, okay. Uh, was a uh, difficult, challenging commercial environment. Yes. Uh, but again, some, something that you, you learn from. Um, and it made, I made a good number of contacts there, came back to the UK, uh, and for the next three or four years, I actually run my own consultancy business for various bits, both transport and non-transport uh, related. 
Um, and then I was approached by an investment bank uh, to help with a due diligence project um, in a, a transport business, and they ultimately bought the Stagecoach London business, which uh, was um, an interesting carve-out from a PLC. I was there for five years before we then sold it back to Stagecoach. The private equity backers had sort of done what they wanted to do with it and uh, come out the other side. So Stagecoach brought it back, and uh, at that point, uh, <laughs> another child came along, so I had a bit of time off and, and helped my wife with that. And then I read about the uh, the, the transit systems acquisition uh, from First Group, and I thought, I've not come across transit systems before. I literally picked the, uh, the the computer up, got on LinkedIn, emailed Clint Foyer, the uh, CEO, and said, mm, done some of this before if you'd like a chat. Started the following week. Really? <laughs> wow. Was that, was that quick. And how long ago was that? That was in 2013. Okay. And it's such a great bunch of guys. Yeah? We really enjoy working with them. And, That's great. Uh, I'd say we've had a, a roller coaster journey over the last few years, um, including refinancing the facilities and all that sort of good stuff that us uh, as accountants get involved in. Um, but it's, it's a sort of blend of finance and commercial. Yeah. Because we're, we're a very thin team here, we're executive chairman, a chief operating officer, myself, and a legal director. And that's the, uh, that's oh, is the that top right? tier. Basically. So your GNA is very small huh, for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we have a local MD in, in Singapore, but I've been there three times this year so far. So it's yeah. uh, a re- relatively uh, well-trodden path over to, to assist. Well, that probably puts you in a position to uh, bid low a lot, right? We don't have all that GNA overhead. Yep, indeed. Although there's there's probably more than we would like. Mm-hmm. And we're still a little bit subscale in certain areas. So being able to spread it even further yeah. will make us more competitive. I like how you've... Uh, You've been in a bunch of the companies that are doing the work over here, so that gave you a very broad perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was mentioned to you earlier, me too. I've, I've worked for a number of companies in North America and feel like I have a broader industry perspective yep. than just one company. Um, so tell us about the model of how it works here in London, if you would. From And then I'd like to get, since you're the CFO, and but you're still involved in the day-to-day operations, I'd be interested, a follow-up question is how it works financially for private companies. You know, How do you actually make a profit over here? I'm real familiar with how it works in America. The margins are very thin (laughs) when they operate in America, these companies. But in Great Britain, Australia, and other countries, most of the transit service is outsourced. Mm -hmm. Unlike America, where it's usually just commuter rail, commuter bus, and paratransit demand response. In North America, most of the fixed route bus, the light rail systems or the trams, and the subway systems are all operated directly by government employees. Mm -hmm. So I was CEO of MTA in Baltimore, and I had, you know, 3,300 employees, and then I had 2,000 contract employees, but they just ran, like I said, commuter train, commuter bus, and paratransit. So tell us about the model here in London especially and how it works for you all. Yeah. I suppose the first thing to do is to say that actually London is different from the rest of the country. That's right, yes. So the model elsewhere in the country is it's a fully deregulated market. Right. So the operators plan the routes, set the fares, collect the money, and make a profit. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's all quite um, real-time stuff because you can uh, register a route um, in a matter of six, seven weeks, and you can equally come off a route in the same sort of time frame. Really? Okay. Real But in London, it's more regulated, right? Yeah, and it's because of the need for a common ticketing system across modes and sensible timetabling so you get connections with all the various railway stations and and so forth. So it it makes an absolute load of sense to have done it this way. So there's um, about 800 contracts, I think, in London at last count. Wow. Something of that order. And these vary from you know, 60 vehicles down to maybe one in terms of their scale. And we've got a blend from the largest to the smallest. So we run about 400 vehicles here. 
The model is that the assets are, for the most part, operator side. We have a couple of uh, projects with Transport for London, for instance, with a hydrogen project where they actually own the vehicles and lease it to us for a peppercorn. And we hydrogen, do you say? Hydrogen power. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we've been running those for, I'd say, seven or eight years now. Really? So they've been, um, they were run by First originally. Yes. And we've... Uh, Taking those on. How is that working? I've got a friend, Lauren Skyver, who runs Sunline Transit in California, and she's a leader in hydrogen fuel. She's actually building a hydrogen power plant mm-hmm. at her uh, transit facility. Is going to sell the fuel. Yeah. Uh, how is it working here for you in London? Yes, I mean, again, it's a very small-scale operation. Yeah. Um, how many vehicles would you we've say? We've got uh, nine. Nine vehicles, yeah. okay. But the, um, the important thing is that whereas when we started, it was very difficult to get a whole day's service out. Mm-hmm. We now are they're, they're as efficient as a, uh, as a diesel, you know, where they're out is that for right? a full day um, okay. without any difficulty. So we've um, refined the whole thing and got it, uh, uh, got it working quite smoothly. Yeah. Very clean, right? No, yeah. no emissions. Yeah, yeah that's just great. Water, just water comes out the back, which is, uh, which is great. <laughs> and it's neat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, for the most part, we own the, uh, the bus assets. Um, well, we finance them from our uh, yes. lenders, of course. Um, but we have a mixture of um, real estate with some of it owned by ourselves. This one we, we own, but okay. we're sitting in at the moment. And we have a, uh, another one leased from Transport for London, actually, in uh, the east side of, uh, of London, quite close to the Olympic Park. Mm-hmm. So that's how it works Works here. Uh, so so you bid on a tender. Yeah. And how many contracts you, you said you had? We, we've got about 20, 20 to 25. 20 to 25 contracts yeah. running 400 buses. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they... And, and they overlap, they're yes. not all the same time. No, and what's the average time of a contract they're, they're, over here? They're all five years. Five years, okay. it's something specific that we yeah. tend to attend. Um, so they're generally a five-year term, uh, two-year extension if you hit years four's operating metrics. Okay. Uh, they need that lead time to retender it if, uh, if you don't meet the, the targets, obviously. And I suppose well, roughly... Half get extended and half don't. Okay, it's very yeah. much depends on the traffic congestion incident in the route area. How are you judged uh, when you do these evaluations? Is it price plus other factors like how you've been operating and those kind of things? They look at the quality of the work? I suppose the the quality of work is a sort of threshold to get you into the discussion in the first place rather than being part of the evaluation is the way I understand it. Oh, I see. um, I mean, unfortunately, with the the fiscal issues we have here in in the UK, um, there's not an awful lot of... um, premium that can be brought into any transport contract. So uh, it tends to be uh, the, the price is the, the key driver of it. Interesting, yeah. 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 And here in the UK, we have a, a piece of legislation called the Transfer of Undertakings Protection of Employment Rules, which means that uh, staff move when the contract moves. So Unionised? Very. Yeah, and what's the names of the unions that you work with here? Um, we're, we're working with Unite most of the time. We have a, Unite? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, they um, have a very large number of transport-related um, employers within their uh, their ambit. Do you have to pick up the same collective bargaining agreement from the prior contractor? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the salaries, are they known when you bid on this stuff? Not very well, in fairness, and that's a little bit of a... That's the same in North America. Difficult it's sometimes situation. difficult to know even what the prices exactly. you have to pay. Yeah. You'd think that there'd be a rule where they have to share that information because that way everybody could bid uh, flat. Yeah, all, you of know, the, or, all of the London offer operators have made that point, um, but uh, unfortunately we haven't had any traction. <laughs> yeah. You need to talk to your MP. <laughs> 
so I suppose that it's more local government here. So it's the mayor's, oh, okay. the mayor's office that uh, yes, is that's true. Sitting at the head of it. Yeah, so, the mayor's office kind of runs TFL, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's how uh, how the system works here. And if we move to Singapore, that's slightly different. Tell um, us about that. How was it in Singapore? Well, in Singapore, it's, it's all government assets. So we just have a contract to operate and maintain. Ah. Uh, so we haven't had to raise any finance for the vehicle stock. Uh, they provided us with a uh, a stunning depot. It's, oh, really? You know, seen a lot of bus depots in my years. Yeah. And Very one. nice, huh? Yeah, yeah, you could probably rebrand it as an airport lounge. <laughs> really? Wow, <laughs> I'd love to see that. That's it's, interesting. It's wonderful. And the model there is it's a single contract covering 25 routes rather okay. than individual contracts by route. And the same sort of operational metrics that you see anywhere else in the world in terms of uh, reliability and uh, yeah, OTP and, yeah, and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that's all. That's all good, very good. Do you have the employees work for you? Yes. So that you're basically hiring all the employees and the management, but using the ass, the facility, and the buses yes. and the fuel. Uh, yeah, we buy the fuel, but it's passed through, so passed through, okay, we, yeah. we're not exposed to any of the, uh, the volatility in the, uh, that, the fuel. That price. keeps your price very stable, I find. Yeah. And how is it here in London? Do you have to? Do you, can you pass through fuel, or is it you have to? No, there, there's a, there is an indexation mechanism, but it's it's not a very good match to the underlying price of the commodity. So we take on financial hedges to uh, to try and bridge the gap between yeah. what we will naturally get under the indexation basket and what we'll be exposed to in the, in the fuel. And normally try and keep it hedged out by a year and a half to two years. Yeah. Um, now, is Tower Transit publicly traded or are you a private company? Private company. Okay, very good. So you're, but you're competing against other publicly traded companies right yes. here? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Interesting angle on it. And um, what are some of the challenges that you face here in the market as a private operator to coming in, working under contract with TFL? Well, again, it's, uh, you know, while we've got quite a small management structure, that's still an overhead that's uh, significant in the terms of the small scale of the operation. So we've we've got probably about 5% market share here in London. We're looking for to expand that. But the biggest challenge is, I suppose, to expansion, uh, apart from the pricing dynamic, is the planning dynamic. So actually getting further infrastructure built in London is mm. really, really difficult. And we, um, we have tried um, various ways of expanding uh, into further operational sites, but getting planning permission, which is... It's really difficult. Um, we achieved a small-scale success, but unfortunately there was a time limit on it, which meant that we had to have all the vehicles home to roost by about 11 o'clock, which is not practical for most TFL contracts because they go on much later than that. So, yeah, we eventually decided that, that was uh, not going to be one that we could actually deliver against. But uh, we, we're keeping our eye open for other opportunities uh, to, to expand it because, um, yeah, it's... There are a number of big players, and obviously they have far greater economies of scale that can be brought to us. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. So um, where do you see uh, the company going in the next few years, both here in London and around the world? Yeah, I'd like to see the, the London operation expand. We, we've got excess capacity here at the moment, and we'd like to fill that. Uh, excess capacity in what way? What do you mean? Parking infrastructure. Oh, facil- yeah, yeah, facilities-wise, yeah, yeah. yeah. Specifically here, I mean, in the east of London, we're, all, well, we're, probably at capacity. There's not much we can do over there. I mean, the big challenge for operators in London at the moment is uh, emissions control and improvement thereof. Yes, that's um, a big push from the mayor's office, right, to control the... Yeah. I saw all kinds of different... Uh, 
buses out there right in front of your facility that were, mm. I saw one that was hydrogen, like you mentioned, yeah. but you have, lo- what other type of fuel usages are you doing? Well, we've got mostly hybrids in the operational fleet. Yes. And we've got a couple of electrics under uh, evaluation, but they're not, uh, not ma- mainstream technology for us yet. We are looking to uh, put a, a substation into this property so that we'd be able to... Electric? Uh, yeah. I think what the uh, powers that be have yet to really grasp is the size absorbed by the electrical infrastructure in a garage. So almost for every 10 diesel buses, you'll only be able to operate eight electric. So that's an interesting statistic when you then gross it up over the dozens and dozens of operational sites there are in London and what that means to the actual bus capacity. And then you get back into the planning argument about well, where we're going to put the rest of them because they still need them. There's not <laughs> going to be any less people traveling. Right. So that's a big challenge. Interesting, yeah. And and so because you have excess capacity, you're hoping to win extra contracts. And do yep. you say they, they're bidding out one route at a time on these contracts? Yes. Or? Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and a route might have how many buses? I suppose they, they're typically between 10 and 20. Okay. So with that range from you know, 60 to 1. Yes. There's, there's a few big ones around as well. Is there a common frequency of service for the headways? So in North America, you know, we consider high-frequency transit any route where the buses are coming every 15 minutes or less. Is, is high-frequency transit a big thing in London? Most. That's what I figured, yeah. yeah. Most of it is. Yeah. Um, and obviously we're geared up uh, to, uh, to deal with that as well. I think we've probably got two low-frequency routes, all the rest are high-frequency. Do you operate your own operations control center with dispatchers, et cetera, there, yeah. controllers? Yeah, yeah 24-7. Okay. Yeah, because we have a lot of vehicles out overnight. Um, so uh, it's uh, it's yeah, it's very labor-intensive control center, as you might imagine. Right. And we've got these guys sitting in front of very large screens seeing the uh, uh, the, the positioning of the uh, the various... Uh, uh, some of these uh, control centers are just amazing. They look like Star Trek. When I was in Sydney, Howard Collins, the CEO of Sydney Rail, took me to their brand-new rail operations center. It wasn't quite operational yet, and I've never seen anything like it. They had the world's biggest television screen up front, yeah. uh, in the bottom even bigger than the Texas State, <laughs> Dallas, Texas uh, Cowboys big screen, which they're very proud of. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it looked, I got to sit in what he called the Captain Kirk chair because it does look like you're on the bridge of the Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. There you go. So tell me about, as a company, what are you looking for in order to get kind of an operation? Don't tell me any secrets, obviously, but I mean, in order to win in this market and in order to make some money as a private, because you're a for-profit company, you're looking to what? Improve the efficiencies and use less operators to do more service? Or what? what, is, what is it that makes your company and the private sector in general, you know, what is making you tick, so to speak, and, and improve? I would like to think that we would say as we operate a sort of forensic analysis of how things are done at a very, very low level. I mean, our chairman is a scheduler beyond all schedulers and he understands it because it's in his DNA. And whenever we have an intractable problem, He's the person you'd deploy, which is... Oh, is that right? That's great. That's a good role for him, yes. Absolutely. What's his name? It's Neil Smith. Okay, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. We are, I suppose, if we look at London as a case study, with the routes that we took on, we went systematically through each route okay. and worked out where the pinch points were, where the operational issues were, and tried to fix them. And it meant that by going through um, a process of discussion with Transport for London, we were able to seek changes to the routing, whatever, where are the, the whatever the pinch points were, yes. to try and resolve them with them, 
to make the whole thing run significantly better. And I think they found that rather a refreshing approach. Yeah, that is so, interesting. Yeah, um, and I do think that's the, uh, the, the one of the hallmarks of a tower transit operation. So we like to think we fix things for government. And if we look at the Singapore case study, there was a, I, I suppose, a bit of a malaise around that. Um, we came in and we definitely had a, a change to the labour relations, uh, the way that staff were paid. There's uh, an issue in Singapore where uh, the reliance on foreign nationals doing the uh, doing work okay. is carefully controlled by the mm. Ministry of Manpower, and the uh, transport um, Ministry of Transport negotiated with them a higher threshold for um, foreign workers for the period of this um, privatisation process. So the baseline for all of the organisations is forty percent, and they moved it up for sixty percent foreign workers for uh, the first three years. So we took a slightly different approach when we went in there, knowing that there was this agenda on hand. So we had about 350 staff move across from the incumbent operators and the rest we had to hire ourselves. 100% of the new hires were all Singaporeans. And that's what they want eventually, right? they wanted, yeah. yeah. Which means our dependency ratio, as it's called, uh, was about 17%. And they were all from the... The people we inherited. And how did you do that? How were you able to get so many? It, it was a change in the market perception of, of what a bus driver's role in life would be and okay. their ability for progression and soft stuff like introducing maternity and paternity leave and that sort of things, which were really as you would expect them from other operating environments and making it a job that was seen to be um, something of, of value and putting a bit of a respect culture around it, I suppose. And, and that was why we achieved it. And we had, at one point, we had 7,000 people waitlisted wow. for interview, which was an amazing feat from our HR team. Yeah. Now, are you, uh, does, does Tower Transit, and again, if, if it's some corporate secret, don't tell me, obviously, but are you all interested in growing only organically, or do you try to buy companies as well, acquire companies, or what, what's your strategy? Well, I prefer to acquire contracts, because of the sure. model. Just bid on contracts yeah, bid on and contracts. Yeah. Because uh, we've got a fairly well trodden path in terms of our BD approach to these people. But um, given that the, um, the the more progressive authorities keep the assets on their balance sheet rather than ours, yes. bidding for contracts is a relatively cost, low cost of entry right. from a financial exactly. perspective. Yeah. Whereas if you're buying somebody's uh, prof profitable business, you're yes. paying a multiple of earnings with an expiring contract. Right. In my mind, it doesn't make a lot of sense to pay any more than the net present value of the future earnings stream, plus whatever you might modify that for the, the asset um, base. But you're going to be talking about a lot of money. Right. And it's not as accretive to shareholder value as going into a new start situation yeah. and relying on our ability to do the transitions well and effectively. Yes. Uh, so it's a much better way of uh, moving the business forward, I think. And why don't we talk about that to kind of close out the interview? I think this is a really, this is a fascinating interview, by the way. Paul, you're giving me stuff that I've never heard before on one of the shows. Talk to me about, I've done this in my career, but I've never heard anybody really talk about it publicly. When you win a contract and then you come in and you take over the employees and you have to then, like you say, transition. Mm -hmm. Talk to me for just for a few minutes about a successful transition and how you do that. Again, no secrets, but just in general, how does it work? I think the key thing is, is, is getting some respect for the people because so many organisations don't do that. If we were to take a walk around the, the garage, and you know, I don't have an operational role here, obviously, but most people know who I am and are very happy to, to wave, say hello, whatever, that sort of thing. And it's, a, it's been a real change over the time when we've, that we've owned it. 
people seem to be a lot more open to ideas. I mean, obviously, that comes from walking the talk, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, you, you've got to do that. But so when you come in, though, do you, which positions do you normally replace with your people? Is it just the general manager or other positions too? Uh, below Adam as well. Um, yeah, I, I thought mean, so, yeah. So um, if we take Singapore as, the, as case study, okay. um, at one point we had probably had six people over there in different roles from yes. diagnostic technician all the way up to operations director. Okay. Um, so Out of how many people in the whole operation? Well, the back office and middle office, we do account for about 100. Okay. Yeah. So there's a bit of a cultural exchange. Yes, right. Every, every jurisdiction is different, but there are certain things where you need to have it done the way you want it done, otherwise you're not going to be able to deliver the product as you've sold it. Yes. But in the same way, you've got to respect local ways of doing things, but try and just like the super tanker, move it to yeah. the bit that you want, really. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Our, our guys have been very, very successful at doing that. The engineering career path in Singapore is very different to here, and so you don't tend to find people who've um, been trained uh, in the workshop moving into management. The management folk all come from university, whereas here there's a much more of a, a progression through the, the various things. So that would be an example where we would need actually to step in and try and, and give those folk a bit of a career path. And that's, they, they welcome it with open arms. So you would say that your primary focus in a successful transition is focusing on the people, the employees, and yeah. making sure that they're well taken care of yeah. and they feel an affinity people. for your company, so yeah. to speak. We're nothing without the people. Yeah. That's a great angle, Paul. Anything else? You no, I, I mean, it, we could go on for yeah, minutes, yeah. But uh, no, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk. I love talking about our business. It's, yeah. it's such a great place. And uh, you know, I'm sort of now heading towards the end of my career. And uh, I think this has been the most rewarding place I've ever worked. Uh, That's which, wonderful. Uh, I think it's probably the testimony to the people I work with um, right from top to bottom. Very good. Well, Paul Cox, thank you so much for being with us today on Transit Unplugged. And we wish you much success as you go forward. Thank you very much, Paul. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.